You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 129 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm, uh, I'm pretty good actually because, you know, school's back and yes. the house is quiet and it's just me and Procrasty Pop doing our usual routines, etc. And I've had a nice holiday. I've been to the Gold Coast, went to Dream cool. World, you know, as oh, you did do. did you go to all the worlds? No, just the one. Just I, one honestly, world? Honestly, one world was enough for me. I'm just <laughs> – I'm not a multi-world kind of girl. Okay. Um, do you know, it's a funny thing because obviously, you know, you go to those things and I, I spend a lot of time sitting around waiting for people to do stuff because yeah. I am the official designated bag carrier oh. and such – Oh, yes. Um, so I'm sitting there with all my bags watching, you know, waiting for the – because you queue for an hour mm. to do a 30-second ride. Like yep. it's pretty yep. much how it works, you know. But I'm sitting there and I'm just watching all the people going past. And um, so, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy as the bag carrier because watching people go past is one of my favourite things to do. Mm. And all I could kind of really come away with, apart from the fact that there were people there who were really inappropriately dressed to walk around a theme park all day, like I'm thinking high heels could be left at home. Um, oh, yeah. There were some outfits, some full outfits, like some glamour outfits. I think they thought they were going to the races. There was a bit of that going on. But just how many unhappy families there are at places like that. It's, what do you mean? Oh, honestly, Val, it's it's um, it's a – it's a marathon. Like it's it's actually not a fun day out for anyone really, particularly if you've got really little kids because mm. a lot of people take really little kids to those places and then find out they can't get on any of the rides. They're too short. Uh. Yeah, there's a, there are like 140-centimetre height restriction on a lot of the rides and there's even weight restrictions on some of them because of the, you know, the momentum and whatever. Anyway, long, long and long story. So I just <laughs> – I know. So I'm just sitting there watching all these grumpy parents walking past, arguing with each other about how they should have stayed at the beach. It was quite funny, oh, really. Oh, no. <laughs> well, great observations for, oh, you know, fun. something that you might really be able interesting. to include. Really interesting. Yeah, it'll come up somewhere for sure, definitely. Anyway, what have you been doing? Surely you have not been sitting at Dreamworld watching grumpy parents. No, I haven't, but I have been very happy sitting and looking across the road at the no – Four boys. Oh, that's <laughs> right. Well, they're back now though, aren't they? Well, I haven't seen them. So I don't know what's going on, but maybe they've got extra school holidays or something or they've gone somewhere else, but the place has been mm. deserted for, for, you know, the whole of the school holidays and I'm very happy. Maybe they moved out because their neighbour across the road is so grumpy. <laughs> no, I'm not grumpy. 
Jackie. I'm nice to them. Of course you are. Of course you are. <laughs> Goes without saying. I am. But anyway. Um... Anyway, let's talk about writing yes. because we can now. I don't have to talk about Dreamworld anymore. Yes, let's talk about writing. Well, first, we want to give a shout out to Rachel A.W., now, Rachel A.W. left us a review on iTunes and called it Great Podcast. And Rachel says, this podcast has been a brilliant way to engage with a writing community. As a working mum, I found it difficult to find the time to attend writing groups or seminars. So this podcast has been wonderful for me. Valerie and Alison speak about things I want to know about as an aspiring writer. I've particularly enjoyed the Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast interviews and author with authors and feel very privileged to be able to listen to the these authors so easily. The podcast also gives me hope that getting published might even be possible. Thank you. Oh, that's oh, nice. Awesome. Thanks, Rachel AW. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. That's um very encouraging. Oh, and speaking of thank yous, I just want to pop a quick thank you into all the people who have um, left ratings and reviews for me on Goodreads, um, you know, drew, uh, further to our previous conversations. I just want to say thank you very much for that. Um, really, really appreciate your, um, your support. It's fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. And if you haven't yet left a review on Goodreads for Alison and her fantastic fantastic mapmaker series uh do head on over there if you have a spare minute because um it's really useful when you're an author isn't it to have uh, reviews yeah, on goodreads yes it is in particular in particular it's because you're launching in the u.s next year right that's right i am uh the books for uh, books one two and three in the mapmaker chronicles are coming out in the u.s in june next year so um it's very very helpful because when new readers sort of hear about the book it's they, they often will go to Goodreads looking for reviews, and it's just very, very helpful to have, um, you know, to have a solid review base there that so that they can see that lots of other people have liked them or not, as the case may be. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week? Let us. Well, this week, in Australia anyway, it may have already happened in America for one of the movies, but uh, a couple of movies are being released this week that uh, were born out of books. Mm -hmm. Now, one is, of course, the very famous The Girl on the Train starring Emily Blunt, and that was that book was a runaway success mm. and is now there's been a lot of um, hype and discussion about the movie, so I'm keen to – I'm keen to watch that one. Mm -hmm. And the other one I'm really keen to watch, even possibly more keen to watch, mm -hmm. is the movie um, of uh, Helen Garner's book, Joe Chinque's Consolation, uh, which, of course, was written – Maybe like eleven years ago now, so it's mm -hmm. it's been a while uh, since it came out, and it's about a true story of a couple of ANU students in what ended up being sort of like a bizarre suicide pact, and it's about um, the the girlfriend who survived the suicide pact and uh, what has happened in the trial that ensued, and it was a it's a brilliantly written book mm. by Helen Garner, and I'm really really keen to see how they treat it on the big screen. Mm. Have you have you read that book? No, no, I haven't. I, I don't know. I missed, well, as you say, 11 years ago. I don't know what I – oh, maybe I was I had small children. I had very <laughs> yes. small children. That would explain it. Yep, I missed the whole thing. Um, yeah, no, I, I haven't read it. I actually might read the book before I go and oh, see yeah, the film. Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. Really, really good. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So but good. I have read The Girl on the Train. Ah, uh, yes. Um, Did you enjoy it? Mm, 
yes and no. Okay. I loved the idea of it. Right, I really yes, liked the, the idea of it. Good. Really, really good because, you know, I'm one of those people that sits on trains and looks through those windows <laughs> and tries to imagine what other people's lives are like. And um, I'm fascinated by the fact that we can all just be living parallel lives so closely together. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I love the idea of it. Um, I, I didn't love the book from memory. I, I think I read it a couple of years ago and I there was so much – I think the problem with it for me was there was so much hype about it mm. that I was expecting – I don't know what I was expecting, but I didn't get whatever it was that I was expecting. And that can often be the case. Like mm. things can actually be killed by the hype that surrounds them, do you feel? Yeah, for sure. Mm. So I think that was kind of killed. I think had I just come to it without, you know, having so so many expectations about it, um, I think I probably would have liked it more. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Did yeah. you like it? Um, I haven't read it yet. Yeah, oh, I'm just one. really keen to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Because the trailer looks really good. <laughs> do you like a do you like a movie from a book? Like a do you are you are you one of those people that likes a movie? Um, you know, a book turned into a movie, or are you one of those people that always feels like the book was better? Uh, I do like. I like the experience of seeing how they adapt it to the screen. Mm. So I kind of approach it from an analytical point of view, although having said that, I haven't read The Girl on the Train. Mm. Uh, but I have read, you know, other things and, and seen them as movies. And sometimes, and, and yes, oftentimes it's not as good as the book, but surprisingly sometimes it's better. Yeah, it's interesting because it is quite a different art form. And I, I ask you because um, I'm about to embark on writing a screenplay yes. for that Maker Chronicles. So it is a, it's a really interesting process to take something that, you know, you have in your heads quite so firmly mm. and then look at how it needs to be presented in a different way for mm. the screen and working with other people collaboratively on that and how, you know, how that's going to, how that's going to work. It's going to be a really interesting process. I'm really excited about it yeah. because I, um, I just, you know, I, obviously I find all, I'm not someone who writes all the things by accident. I do it because I'm quite fascinated by all the different processes of how things yes. work and how they come together. So I'm really, you know, very, very excited about embarking on this particular little journey. And so you're going to have to kill different darlings. Yeah, I'm, possibly. It's gonna. Yeah, I, I. It's going to be quite an interesting process as to see. You know. Yeah, exactly. Like you do. Will my favourite bits of the books mm. make it to the screen? Maybe not. You know. Mm. And it's obviously like it's the 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 real focus for um, the screen is the adventure aspect of it. It is a you know mm. blockbuster waiting to happen in many ways. Um, but some of my favourite bits of the book are internal. A lot of it's internal yeah, because, of yeah. course, the books are all told from, you know, Quinn's mm. perspective, the hero. It's about his growth. It's about mm. his his perspective and he's discovering the world for the first time and a lot of it goes on in his head. So getting that on the screen is going to be interesting. Mm. Well, <laughs> when do you get um, stuck into that? Uh, next month I have my first uh, workshop, you know, uh, collaborative meeting about it and then uh yeah I guess we take the process from there so um anyway I'll keep you all posted as yeah, I go very exciting you can, <laughs> you can experience the ups and downs of this with me I'm <laughs> sure it'll be highly entertaining all right let's move on to a link that I found on salon.com and it's called stars of the spoken word meet the audiobook 
narrators who are quietly saving book publishing. Mm. Now, this is interesting because basically it talks about the fact that, you know, I mean, we've all, we all know what audiobooks are. So, mm. uh, and I used to listen to them a lot more, actually. Um, I'm not sure why I fell off, but I used to listen to them almost daily. Uh, but um, they are talking about the fact that in um, – Sales of audiobooks have increased by 35.3%, which is pretty good in mm. the first quarter of the year. And one of the reasons for that is that some audiobooks, especially classics, are being read by famous actors. Now, did you know that Nicole Kidman narrates Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse? And Samuel L. Jackson reads Chester Himes's A Rage in Harlem. And, and I think that this would be totally worth um, looking at, Jeremy Irons has read Lolita. Yes, mm. that would be interesting. Which he I was in, of course. I did not know that. And um, I, I find it really interesting because I hadn't actually really considered how important the reader for an audiobook was. Oh. I think, I yeah, it's a funny thing because yeah. it's actually quite difficult when you go to buy audiobooks for the first time because I'm not a mad listener of audiobooks. I've never – it's it's I, I prefer to read them than listen to them. Um, but I went looking for audiobooks before we went on our marathon, you know, drive to Queensland mm. uh, for the boys to listen to. And um, Book Boy, who is my 12-year-old, was very excited because he just read Miss Peregrine's Home mm. for Peculiar Children, and he really wanted to read the second one. And he found out that he could get it, you know, from the library via Overdrive um, as an audio book. So we were like, brilliant. Okay, you can listen to it in the car. And he listened to it for about 20 minutes and then just said to me, I cannot stand this voice. Yeah. I can't listen. He, he really wanted to listen to the story, mm. but he couldn't stand the voice. And I think, you know, you kind of, I guess – it's really, really important, isn't it? It's so important. And I've persisted sometimes with some voices because I've been on long car trips and that was the only mm, thing I brought with yeah. me. <laughs> but oh, I wanted to like tear my hair out by the end of it because the voice was really? so annoying. Yeah. Oh. How do you find well, – here's a question for you then. As someone who does listen to them, how do you find good ones? Like do you have to look for known names? Sometimes of, you can't. There narrators? are no names. Sometimes you, 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 play, you can play a preview. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you can get to – which I obviously didn't do in those circumstances when I discovered yeah. it was a terrible voice. Or it sounds okay in the preview because you're only listening to a short thing, but after you've listened to something for 10 hours – yeah, you can go a yeah. Bit crazy. <laughs> and they do, uh, you know. And I was looking at the length of some of them. You know, forty hours, and yeah. I thought, oh, that's like that's dedication to do that. But then I think, well, how long would it take you to read it? Yeah, yeah. probably not forty hours. Anyway, no. Anyway, but okay. anyway, audiobooks. There you go. And did you know? Do you do this the thing where I'm in, meaning to do this, where um. Because you can buy, you know, your books on Kindle through Amazon. Mm-hmm. You can also then buy the same book uh, as an audiobook, for, but for much cheaper if you buy it through Amazon. You know what I mean? Oh, like you get okay. it like a discount kind of thing. Yeah. No, and I didn't do that. You can then listen to the audiobook, um, you know, from Audible uh, on your phone or whatever. And let's say you stop at chapter three, halfway through, you can then sync it to your Kindle so that if you then decide to go read it, it will be at that point. Oh. Yeah. 
I'm keen to try it. I'm keen to try it. That sounds like a very you thing to do, Val. I think you should get into that. (laughs) I'm going to. I just need to decide on which audio book I want. But, yeah, I'm totally going to. Um, I will report back. Please do. All right. Let's move on then to a post that I found on Karen Woodward's blog. And she talks about the zero draft. Mm. I just really like this idea because you know how we talk about you just got to get that first draft out because so many times people just don't finish. They get to 60% or they get to chapter three or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important to get that first draft out because until you have that first draft, you've actually got nothing in terms of getting published. Mm. You need to have a finished manuscript. Mm. And so many people – I think get because I, you know, I talk to people and ask them questions about why they don't finish and stuff like that. And so many people, I think, don't finish not only because, yes, there's procrastination, life gets in the way, but doing a first draft is daunting because you're Mm. doing 80,000 words or however many thousand words, right? Mm. It's daunting and you are finishing what's supposed to be. You're the start, you know, the first version of your novel. Mm. But I love this the psychological impact of calling it a zero draft, where it's literally vomit. No one in the world will see it but you. So mm. it's not a first draft, you know what I mean? Because your first draft, you might send it to a reader or, you know, someone you trust. A zero draft is literally just for you, and it takes away any pressure. I love this idea. I mm. think I'm, I'm going to try it in, in a variety of things. It doesn't have to be even for your novel. If you're writing a long feature story or something and you feel daunted, do a zero draft. Mm. Do you think? Do you like that idea? I like this idea. I think so. I'm just trying to get my head around it. I think everything, every first draft I ever write, though, is a zero draft. So I, I'm um, just because of the way that I that I do write, I don't. I don't, show, I don't show first drafts to anyone any, anyway. I would have, ne- have never send out a first draft to anyone. Uh, well, I was no, cured of a... that a long time ago. Yes. I think, you know, you, you get cured of that very quickly. If you ever do it and then it comes back to you, <laughs> you go, yeah, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I, yeah, no. So I, I don't tend to – yeah, every single draft I ever write is a zero draft. It is right. basically just me writing a story for myself. It's me working out – um, what the story is, and then yes. I go back and and I fix it. Having said that, my first drafts, my zero drafts, even if they are whatever, are, are actually fairly solid most of the time. Yes. So I think yeah. that, okay. So you're probably beyond the the zero draft, but I think there are some people who have the seed of an idea and haven't necessarily worked out where it's going to go or plotted it out or whatever. Uh, and, and they're afraid that if they start their first draft, then they're going to be faced with all of those issues of plotting it out and structure and stuff. Whereas this is literally just vomit. Yeah. Just get whatever's out, in, out of your head, in your head, out of it. Mm-hmm. And I just think psychologically it, it might work for some people. I think you're beyond it. But I think that, yeah, some people might find it useful. Oh, I totally agree. And I think that I personally think that you should approach every first draft like that. I think it's mm. – um, but I also think that you also need to uh, – because where I find people then go wrong or, or come unstuck is a lot of people will write a zero draft and then they can't for the life of them work out how to edit it, how to structurally edit it mm. because it can be, um, you know, 
you know, shifting piles of words from one end of a manuscript to the other can be even more daunting than actually starting the whole thing from scratch as well. Mm. Um, so I think it will work for some people really well. And if you, particularly if you're blocked, if you're finding it extremely difficult to even get words on the page, mm. you just have to give yourself permission to write whatever is in your head. Yeah. Um, but I also think that for other people, they would find that traumatic, you know, that they, you yeah. know, I can't, I've got, you know, some of our spreadsheet using structural people <laughs> would find that whole process to be quite traumatic. So it, it very much depends on the the style of writer that you are, I think. Yeah, true, true. Mm. Well, yeah, give it a go. It may or may not work for you, but certainly a tool at your disposal. Mm. Uh, all right, so let's move on to another link. This is from The Right Practice. And, mm. of course, all of these links are in our show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Now, this is this is cool. It's called How Do You Sell 100 Million Copies of a Book? <laughs> oh, wouldn't we all like to know that? Yes, I think we all would like to know that. All so, right. How do we do it, Val? They, well, what they've done is they've looked at, uh, in order, Wikipedia's full list of best-selling books of all time. Mm. Now, can you guess what they are? No. <laughs> I, I, I think Harry Potter would have to be in there. It is in there. It's number I would five. Imagine, I would imagine, and I'm not looking at the list here, I would imagine that Tolkien is in there somewhere. He it would have to be with his, something. The Hobbit at number six. All right. And, and the Harry Potter book at number five is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And Adam, is To Kill a Mockingbird in there? No. Oh. What about Gone with the Wind? No. There is an Agatha Christie. An Agatha Christie. All right. You'll have to tell us, Val. Come on. Okay. So the first one is Don Quixote. Second one is A Tale of Two Cities by Dickens. Mm -hmm. The Alchemist is the third one. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Little Prince by Mm -hmm. Antoine de (laughs) Saint-Exupéry. Harry Mm -hmm. Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, The Hobbit. And then number seven is And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. Number eight is Dream of the Red Chamber. Mm. And number nine is Alice in Wonderland. There you Carol. go. Yeah. So, yes. So what they've done is they've analysed what these books don't have and what these books do have. Right. So what they don't have, so what doesn't matter if you want to be a mega bestseller is – Sex doesn't sell. <laughs> there you go. So, really, um, in only three of the books on the list uh, have any romantic element at all. Right. <laughs> yes. There so, you go. but some important things to if you do want to sell a hundred million copies. Number one, write in English. <laughs> Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, five out of the nine books were originally written in English. Yeah. Um, and uh, each of the other four were written in different languages, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and Chinese. Uh, number two, write for children or young adults. Oh, at least Ooh. I'm in the right category. Yeah, in the right Woo-hoo. category. Yeah. Five of the nine bestsellers were written for children or young adults. You know, mm-hmm. Alice in Wonderland, The Little Prince. Yeah. Harry yep. Potter, Bilbo Baggins, kind of, sort of. Yep. Um, set your story in two worlds. Mm-hmm. Mm. Interesting. So that's an interesting one, you know, because yeah. Alice goes into other places, Harry Potter, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, use a whimsical tone. 
<laughs> right. According to this, they reckon six uh, six of nine of the books have uh, a whimsical tone. All right. You're into whimsical. I love a bit of whimsy. Yes. I have to go. I have to get work on my whimsical tone immediately. <laughs> um. It's this is a fancy word, Bildungsroman. Oh, build right in the Bildungsroman genre, which basically means a coming of age story. Ah, okay, yep, mm. that makes sense. Yeah, so it's interesting that they've analysed these books and come up with a bunch of. I mean, this list is not exhaustive. There's more in the show notes, uh, but uh, I think that uh, it's a cool idea. It is. A, it's a great idea for a blog post. Yeah. It's written by Joe Bunting and I think Joe's done an excellent job with that. Excellent job. Mm. But I think your books fulfill quite a number I was going to say, I can't believe I haven't sold 100 million copies. Like seriously, look at me. I tick boxes in all the places there. Exactly. Which just goes to show you that that list is possibly not worth as much as it should be. Because I have not yet sold 100 million copies. Yeah, but you're launching into the US next year. So, oh, there's still you know, time. You're this right. is there's like, oh, they, they, this is when, you know, this list is of all time. Yes. And <laughs> many of these books have been around for some time. Yes. So, you know, all right. All we'll right. see how we go. Let's move on to the giveaway for this week. Okay, what have you got for us? This is cool. Can you hear me clapping? I can. I, I actually can hear you clapping. Sadly. I think this is cool. This is called "All This in Sixty Minutes" mm-hmm. by cameraman Nicholas Lee. And right. Nicholas worked for Channel Nine as a sixty minutes cameraman for three decades. Three decades before wow. retiring in 2012, and so many times we hear about you know the people in front of the camera, the 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 Tara Browns, the Yana Vents, the George Neguses, all of that, mm-hmm. and very few people hear about the people behind the camera. So I think this is an interesting take on what is obviously an iconic show and one that everyone knows. So he's released this book, and it has been described as a deliciously gossipy and humorous memoir. Excellent. So I, love, if, I love deliciously gossipy. Yes, love deliciously <laughs> gossipy. <laughs> so if you want to win, go to writercenter.com.au slash win and um, put your entry in there. And if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, you can still go to writercenter.com.au slash win and there will be another giveaway for you to have a look at. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murder course. All right. Are we ready for the word of the week, Al? So ready. So ready. I'm so ready. Venerate. Venerate. Yes, that's V E N E R A T E. Venerate. Okay. Hmm. Do you know okay. that word? Do you know that word? No, I don't know. I, 
when I saw it, I was thinking, is she meaning venerable? Oh. Ah, but I had not heard of venerate, so venerate. So, yes. yeah. Anyway, tell I us what it means, Val. I decided to include this because I was reading a book the other day and it, I came across this word and I don't think it's used very much, so I thought I'd include it here. So venerate, and the book referred to a venerated member of the police force. Mm. And I thought, oh, okay, then I kind of could get that from context, although the person it was describing was somebody who was a good cop and a bad cop. Mm. So I wasn't quite sure. So I looked it up in the Macquarie mm. and the Macquarie says that it means to regard with reverence or to revere. Mm. So there you go, venerate. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Now, so a close cousin of venerable. Yeah, close cousin. Mm. Close cousin. Excellent. All right. Now you can all sleep. Oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> I've really missed the word of the week while I've been on holidays, <laughs> but I've really missed it. I have. Sure you have. I have. It's a highlight of my week. Sure you have. And uh, for those of you who are using the word of the week in your blog posts, do ping us and let us know because we'd love to see it in action. Mm. Now, we are going to our writer in residence this week. Oh, that's exciting. Yes. Who have you got for us, fellow? Well, we're doing something different. What? Yes, we're doing I wasn't told about this. Yeah, now you know. You're not going to interview me, are you? No. Maybe you did that to me one time. I know. This week we're doing something really exciting, Al. I'm interviewing you. What? (laughs) That's right. That's not that though, right? It's not. But this is a double header. Yeah. That's exciting. You know how, remember in the old days when you used to go to the movies and there used to be two? Yeah, that is yeah. exciting. I don't know what happened to that. But anyway. Will there be an interval, halftime, change ends, anything? No. I guess okay. so. You can get some popcorn. <laughs> yeah. In the interval, everyone, you can get yes. some popcorn. Excellent. All right. So who are we talking to? So instead of one interview, we've got two shorter interviews this week. And let's go to the first interview first. Mm-hmm. And it's somebody that we all know well, Candace Fox, who is the fantastic crime writer who we have had on the uh, podcast before when she released um, – her series of three books mm-hmm. in the Bennett Archer series, which was fantastic, unputdownable. And she's won like two Ned Kelly awards. And, um, you know, when we first interviewed her, she had only released one book and her second book was about to come out. Right. Uh, but since then, she, it's, she's gone nuts. Well, she hasn't gone nuts, but her book sales have gone nuts. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that she has done is she has collaborated with James Patterson, you know, the iconic crime author James Patterson to write a book together called Never Never and Mm -hmm. I am seeing it everywhere in bookstores at airports on bus shelters everywhere wow yes you know and that's what happens when you hook up with James Patterson that's pretty exciting yeah what I wanted to know and what I hope our listeners find interesting is how did she get that deal how Mm. did she you know connect with James Patterson and say Mm. hey can I write a book with you Mm. so this is Candace Fox on exactly that let's have a listen Thanks so much for joining us today, Candice. Thanks so much for having me, yeah. Now, we first chatted to you on the podcast back in episode 48, which was a while back now. And at the time, you had released Hades and you were only just about to release Eden, the fantastic follow-up. And then after that, you release Fall, 
also fantastic, but you've been a busy girl. <laughs> I sure have. Yeah. It feels like a million years ago. It feels um, like a million years ago. It was released. Yeah, but it wasn't that long ago, but so much has happened then. Mm. And um, including a collaboration with James Patterson, you've released Never Never and it is going gangbusters. I see it in bus shelters. I see posters everywhere. I see it at the front of bookshops. I see it, you know, everywhere and I thought well we need to have a catch-up with Candice to find Mm. out how all this happened um what's happened you know since we last spoke and well as I said you've released fall and the uh, the whole you know three books have done really really well you've Mm. won the Ned Kelly award twice already yeah Yeah, yeah. the uh you've just gone nuts but tell us In the first instance, let's just get down to it. How did the collaboration with James Patterson happen? Well, I actually got um, an invitation in the mail uh, to go to a cocktail party that was celebrating a few things. He um, collaborated on a young adult novel with um, Ed Chatterton, one of our Aussie authors, Um, and then also he was releasing Private Sydney with Catherine Fox. Um, So I was just going to attend a cocktail party, but I cheekily said to my agent, um, you know, I'm a Patterson fan from way back. Um, you watch, I'm going to go and collaborate with him. I'm going to, I'm going to corner him at the place at the cocktail party and make him collaborate with me. Mm-hmm. And she thought that was hilarious because, you know, uh, it, it is, it's been a few years, but my confidence has sort of soared with the awards and things like this. And she said, oh, yeah, you know, you're going you're gonna <laughs> to collaborate with James Patterson now. Because when I met my agent, you know, I was just about in tears about my first book not being released on the Isle of Man. My first um, publishing contract was with an independent publisher on the Isle of Man and, and you knew, my dreams were so small, you know. <laughs> and then so I went to this cocktail party and he was there and everybody was just freaking out, you know, having celebrity moments. <laughs> just As soon as he walked in, everyone was like, oh, my God, there he is, don't look, you know, and just panicking and um, – pretending not to notice him and this sort of thing and then he gave a speech and I just um I was standing in the corner and I sort of thought he's never going to get shown over here he had like a sort of an entourage Mm. of people all around him and then he was being introduced to some very important booksellers and publishers and things and I thought he's never he's never going to get over here to this dark (laughs) corner of the room so I just had to push my way through I just went over there and I was like excuse me excuse me oh my Um, goodness yeah I know and I could feel all these people in the room sort of looking at me as if to say, who is that girl and what is she doing barging over there? And so I just had like a little chat with him. I just said, you know, I've loved your work for my whole life. I started reading him when I was very young, inappropriately young. So <laughs> this kind of fiction, yeah. Okay. I told him, oh, my God, I read Kiss the Girls when I was 12 and I absolutely loved it. And oh, he my was God. Like, he said, oh, my God, that's really inappropriate. <laughs> Um, But, I mean, I started reading true crime at age seven. Yeah. I got in big trouble because I went to school and I told all my friends what I'd been reading about. So my (laughs) mum took all the true crimes from the shelf that I could reach in her bedroom and she put them up the top of the shelf, but she left all the James Pattersons down there. So. (laughs) I was quite happy to read those. But I didn't want to make him feel old either. <laughs> so I just sort of said, 
oh, you know, love your work and just want to say hello. And, and then I sort of, you know, got out of there really quickly before I said anything stupid or, or if there was an awkward silence or something. <laughs> um, so by the time he, somebody said something to him and by the time he turned around, I was gone and it was perfect because it's like a mystery. You know? <laughs> Where did you go? And then um, my publisher gave him a copy of um, Hades and he read it on the plane home and just loved it. And wow. Yeah. And so sort of from there. Did, did you talk about the fact that you were uh, writing crime as well when you were talking to him? Yeah, I, I mentioned it briefly and I sort of said I was writing something set in Cairns and, and he talked about how, you know, he doesn't really mind where it's set. It's the characters mm. you know, that are very important to him and, you know, um, I didn't want to sort of sound like I was big noting myself because obviously I couldn't compare. I think um, Fall was about to come out, so I had I had two books down, mm-hmm. so I felt very much like an amateur. <laughs> um, so I just, yeah, I just wandered away. But he he really loved Hades and um, wanted to bounce some ideas around with me. It wasn't set. You know, when I got the call from my publisher mm. sort of saying, would you like to collaborate with James Patterson? Um, what know. did you – how did you react? I was very cheeky with her too. I said, I said, you know, I'm going to have to think about it. Um, <laughs> give me a week. <laughs> so, um, no, I was like, oh, my God. And she was sort of like that too because she was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. She had hoped, you know, that she could get wrangle him in for another um, another book. Uh, so he wanted to bounce some ideas around with me, and I I was very entrepreneurial. I mm. I threw some ideas around that I knew would be good for a series. Mm-hmm. In case he wanted to do more than one book with me. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes. So we just had some emails back and forth, throwing the ideas around, um, and then it was sort of official after that. So did you come up with the ideas? Did you come up with the plot and everything? How did it work on a practical level collaborating on this book together? Um, it, it was a very messy process in the beginning because I think he was trying to sound me out uh, as to whether or not I had characters and ideas outside the Bennett Archer series because mm. I only had a couple of books out Uh so it was just a conversation to begin with. You know, he sort of said, oh, what I'm thinking is strong male protagonist um, and an Australian setting that isn't necessarily like a metropolitan city. Um, he wanted something um, very, you know, grassroots Aussie. Mm. And um, so I started thinking about ways that we could contain the suspect. Um, mm. I, I, I sort of thought... Um, if it's going to be in the outback, it's going to have to be a small town or or something like that. I threw around some very strange ideas. Um, I said maybe because I was in the Navy for a couple of years, I said what if we set it on a Navy ship? You know, and there's a murder on a ship, and they've got to um, they've got to solve it before the ship gets back to Sydney. Um, you know, and the suspect gets off board, mm. um, that sort of thing. So my concern really was containing the suspects. And then um, I suggested FIFO mine, and he really liked that. So, um, and then I I was trying to get him into a series. So I said, what if the protagonist <laughs> has a, a um, the B plot is the protagonist has like a loved one or a, a, a husband or wife or something that's been arrested for a terrible crime. And then he said, oh, that'd be awesome. What if we change it to a female protagonist and it's like her brother? 
mm-hmm. you know, and that sort of thing. So it was just sort of a conversation. And then from there, he likes to work in outlines, really long, explicit outlines. Um, mm-hmm. So we did a sort of a mini outline of about 4,000 words. Where of we just, the whole book? Yeah, of mm-hmm. the whole thing. So we had like a plot um you know uh the the FIFO mine situation who's been murdered out there who's actually doing it uh and then we had the B plot of Harry's brother having been arrested what was actual crime there um and and how is she dealing with that emotionally we had to sort of think about her character a bit because he's so character centric so he said i wonder if she could be some kind of athlete Mm-hmm. Um and I and I or ex athlete and I I was actually taking boxing classes at the time so I was like well I know a lot about boxing yeah I've been a boxer from way back I started boxing probably in about two thousand and three so I knew a lot about it anyway uh-huh. yeah um and I'd done running in fall as well I'm a runner mm-hmm. as well but I'd written a lot about running and I didn't want to get a reputation as that running chick yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, so um, we did a, a, a larger outline of I think it was 13,000 words for Never Never, which was huge. Wow. Which is every, yeah, every single chapter and what happens in every single chapter. And then there was obviously rearrangement of that sort of thing for tension. Yes. You know? And my instinct as a writer is uh, to have my characters pausing and remembering a lot um, you'll notice that across the Bennett Archer series that they reflect on their childhoods and things a lot. Mm. And he was like, no, 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 we don't have time for that. Right. Because <laughs> you know, he's all about like detention and mm. the page turning. And we ended up with 116 chapters and every single one of those 116 chapters ended with something explicitly at stake. Mm. Um and that's just his style. That's that's how he, he that's how his books work. So I had to adapt to that style. So basically, you came to an agreement on a long outline. After which, you were left to your own devices to write the to write the whole thing. Yeah, it wasn't even really that formal. I mean, I sort of powered out on it for a while, and then I got busy um, with my own novel for the year and, and, um, appearances and things that I was doing. So I kicked it back over to his people and him, you know, for a look in at it. And then he came back with all these suggestions and written bits and Mm. things. It was very messy, but it seemed to work because Mm. we're both very good communicators. So we kept in touch the whole time. And great. I mean, if you're both, writers then you can sort of say things um and and you understand you know you can sort of say should we kill this guy or not yeah yeah and And you know why Mm. it'd be a really good death but you know all this sort of thing like i wanted to chop someone's leg off and he was like no 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 we're gonna need we're gonna need that guy to do some running and jumping up on things so he better not chop his leg off and wonderful and so you have also co-written a prequel novella black and blue but Mm. also you're writing the sequel so your efforts have paid off (laughs) in trying to think up an idea that would go into a series so where are you at with that are you finished writing it are you writing it what's what's happening 
Yeah, I'm actually writing two book twos at the moment. It's really weird. Last year I wrote Crimson Lake of my own, which comes out in February, Mm. and my publishers and my British publishers and that have been so excited about it. They want another one of those. And so um, James and I are writing Never Never 2 or whatever whatever that will end up being called. Titles Mm. are the very last thing that you do. Yes. Um, So I'm writing two sequels at the moment, which is interesting. Um, So in book one of Never Never, Harry's brother has been arrested for these serial killings uh, and most of the book is dealing with her shock Mm. of that. and, And has he really done it and how did she not see this? coming and 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 this sort of thing and the public outrage obviously because she's a sex crimes detective and Mm. they're sexually violent crimes Mm. um and so in book two we start to discover did her brother actually do it and if not who did do it and you know the trial is happening and that sort of stuff so um yeah it's exciting and there are a few characters who are introduced in Black and Blue and in Never Never who come back um, Mm. in Never Never 2 to work with each other. Now, Um, you're writing two book twos and they're all – they're – you know, totally different from each other. They've got completely different plots. You've obviously got to tie them in with the story that happened in book one and no doubt you're possibly even thinking of book three. How in the world do you keep track? Do you have post-it notes? Do you have, How do you keep track of who's doing what, where and when and what possibly they might do in the future? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's strange. I'm not a very good sleeper for that reason. When, when, I, <laughs> when I started collaborating with James, um, I just pushed myself to the limit of what I I could hold in my brain because I, I don't plot and I don't use post-it notes or that sort of thing and and so it was all swirling around in my brain and I was finding I couldn't sleep I was wandering around the house at night and oh, um, I, I know and then my husband ran into me in the kitchen a couple of times thinking that I was still in bed and I absolutely scared the life out of him so he was like <laughs> After doing that about two or three times, he was like, okay, you need to start figuring out. You can give me a heart attack. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've been plotting a little bit more myself mm-hmm. um, and I'm getting more frequent check-ins with my agent, my publishers and that sort of thing because there are so many people watching what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got my Australian publisher who's contracted me and I've got my British publisher now. I just got a five five book deal in England. Um, yeah, and the Americans are very interested to see what I'll come up with next. And and they don't they don't want me to spend six to nine months writing out the bulk of a book and then for them to go, oh, my God, um, we hate the idea. Not the, yeah, <laughs> so, not what we want. Yeah, so it's about every 10,000 or 20,000 words now that I sort of say what I'm doing and they wow. say, yeah, they say, oh. Yeah, it is interesting. It's good for me because I can sort of say this is the crime and who do you think's done it? And I get all of their guesses as to who has done it, and then I make sure I don't do any of those. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because they're too obvious, right? So, yes, yes. Yeah, it's good. It's interesting um, having all these people on board now to see how many people are actually involved in making a book happen. Yes, yes. Um, at the level that I'm at right now, because mm. I wrote Hades completely by myself. Yes. Um, with no help, and then I consulted them a little bit 
just for my own confidence on Eden. Uh, and now I've got all these people watching. And, I mean, the pressure is not lower, but it's different. Mm. So cast your mind back to when I first met you, which you had already released Hades, but you had not actually released Eden yet. It was soon to come. So you had really one book to your name. And now the world is totally different. You've got this five-book deal. You're collaborating with James. You're, you know, there's um, interest in the UK, in the US. Did you, um, at that point when I first met you, when you had that one book, Mm. think, this was going to happen or or happen so quickly no certainly not I remember being absolutely terrified writing Eden uh as well and and I was months behind because I'd been too afraid to ask my agent and my publisher whether or not they were going to give me another book deal or if they were even interested in a second book (laughs) after Hades and so it was about five or six months later that I said, do you guys want another book out of me? And they said, we thought you'd been writing one this whole time. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I freaked out, um, <laughs> you know, so now I'm in contact with them almost daily. Right. Uh, I had, yeah, I had no idea it was going to be like this and I never, I never really dreamed of it being this huge. Um, it's exciting. It's, it is exciting. It, it, and because I don't have any idea of what will come next, um, it's it's amazing and joyous every time something great does happen. Like mm. the TV, there there are TV things in the works, and I'm trying to plan what I'll do next year in terms of touring around for the different books yep. and that sort of stuff. Yeah, like I said, when Gabby met me. Um, an independent publisher in the Isle of Man had picked me up and he'd had Hades for about, you know, 18 months and then he'd run out of money. And I was so devastated because I'd built my dream into being a superstar on the Isle of Man and having like 100 (laughs) fans and, you know, and I was actually going to pay him uh, to print like 30 extra copies so that I could have it around my friends and family. Like that was the extent of my dream and I was devastated that it hadn't happened. But it's a good thing it did happen because then the rest yeah. is history, right? Yeah, well, he actually wrote to me the other day and there was a picture and he said, I just thought I'd let you know you've finally made it to the Isle of Man and you never was there in the bookstore. And I thought, wow, that's what an amazing journey. Wonderful. Isn't All it? right. Well, you're certainly one of our favorite authors and thank you for the update and we'll certainly check back in with you when Crimson Lake comes out but in the meantime everyone should go and buy Never Never because it is certainly a page turner you can't put down so thank you so much for your time today Candice thank you so much for having me all right there you go so some insight into what's happening with Candice Fox right now Well, it's pretty exciting. Very exciting. (laughs) Now, let's move on to the second part of our double header. Now, this is very, very different, but I just loved this story that I wanted to chat to this guy and bring the story to our listeners because I was at the Squibby Conference, you know, the Society for Children's Writers and Illustrators. Yes. And um, uh, on a panel on how to build your author platform and build your profile, and it it was that was really fun. And uh, in the break. 
afterwards, I started chatting to Giuseppe Poli. Now, Giuseppe is a children's book illustrator. He's now illustrated, I think, um, three or four children's books. And uh, I have one of them, and I think it's absolutely gorgeous, Oliver's Grumbles. And <laughs> <laughs> it's so cute. And he, what I loved about his story is that Giuseppe is an IT guy by day. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he fixes computers and, well, I don't know if he fixes them, but he does IT-related things. Mm -hmm. And by night and in his spare time, he's actually this amazing illustrator. And I love the fact that he finally kind of discovered that he wanted to foster that creative talent later in life Mm -hmm. and is making it happen. Fantastic. Yeah, love it. So let's have a chat to Giuseppe. Thanks for joining us today, Giuseppe. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me, Valerie. I'm really excited to have a chat with you. We don't actually often talk to illustrators, uh, mm. but um, you and I met at the recent Squibby conference. Yes. And um, we were just chatting and you happened to show me some of your illustrations on your phone initially. Yes. And I just loved them. Oh, I thanks. thought that they were – they just really – spoke to me. I just absolutely fell in love with them. I particularly fell in love with uh, Oliver's Grumbles, the illustrations for Oliver's Grumbles and um, the illustration of the gorgeous owl. Oh my God. Oh, from yes. Hootie. Hootie, Hootie the cutie. Yes. Yeah. So first of all, just tell me how many children's books, picture books have you illustrated now? I've illustrated um, four. Uh, my fourth one is, well, will be released next year in March. Fantastic. And then the most recent one was Oliver's Grumbles. Yes. yes. Which is, is a gorgeous book and it's about this little boy who um, his grumbles are kind of his attitude to life and his negativity. And I yeah. absolutely adore these illustrations. Oh, thank you. Absolutely adore them. Um and I think you have a really interesting story because you're a bit like Batman. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> by day you do something else and by night you're an illustrator. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Because I think that it's really interesting that you're, you're becoming a full-time illustrator, but you're not, you're, you're not full-time yet, but this is such an interesting part of your journey, step in your journey. So what do you do during the day? <laughs> My, um, I, I'm an IT um, guy. I lead a, a small team of SharePoint uh, administrators. Right. So that's very different from illustrating. You're an IT guy. You deal with computers all day. Yeah. Now, when did you sort of start illustrating? Well, just talk us through how you got into this. Like, when? How did you go from IT to this? <laughs> well. Um, when I was at school, I used to uh, – I was really good at art. I used to make games and, and, and do all sorts of stuff for kids and had a great time doing it. And when it came to thinking about what I would do at university, um, there wasn't any animation courses and I wasn't um, in love with senior art at high school because I got into the theory and I just wanted to make stuff. <laughs> so I did a Bachelor of IT thinking I can get into computer games. <sighs> it. This was pre-Toy Story, so there wasn't really anything out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it, but I, I managed to get a foot in the door at a visual effects company. And so I was working on, on films, visual effects for films, which was awesome. Except that when I went to work, all the cool artists went to one side of the office and I went to the other side. 
And I was <laughs> because you were more IT focused? Yeah, because that was sorry, that was the job opening that I had. I was the foot in the door. Okay, right. And I tried to get onto the other side of the wall for a long time and I couldn't quite make it. And one day that career led me to a six month stint on Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And that was a dream come true. What but did still, you what did you do on Lord of the Rings? I was a, a render wrangler. So I took care of a uh, me and a team took care of a uh, four thousand CPUs. You know, 4,000 know, 4, computers that created the visual effects for the movie. Right. Um, so we had to babysit that overnight pretty much near the end of the movie. But I was surrounded by this amazing talent um, and a tool weather workshop and a, I really just wanted to cross that divide from the tech guy to the art guy. Yeah. And But what I found was in that industry it was a 12-hour a day gig and it was more of a lifestyle thing than a, than a, um, you couldn't, I, I didn't know how I was going to fit my creative stuff into it. Mm-hmm. So I left it and got a nine to five job and that's how I got into the IT industry. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking that I would be able to do all this cool art stuff at night, but you know what it's like with a nine to five job. You, you get home and you're, you're tired and it became a struggle for about eight years, I think, of just trying to wow. um, force myself to be creative. Yep. And um, I've been thinking about it recently. I think what happened was I come from a migrant family mm-hmm. and our life was about struggle. Mm-hmm. We lived okay, but the mentality was you worked hard and, you know, you just really pushed through. And I realized I was doing that to my art because I was looking at other artists and they were kind of like frolicking and succeeding. I'm like, how can you be so nonchalant about it? How can you just kind of wander through and succeed? And I realized, you know, I'm running from something. Yes. Maybe I should run to something. Right. And, you know, that and is. I was, yeah. Yeah. Because I, whilst I was working in IT, you learn all this management stuff and, and planning and projects. And, and I was applying the logical rigor of a business to my art career. Mm-hmm. And... I I was really going slowly. So what I realized is if I wanted to get into children's book illustrating, I actually needed to finish some work. And I never really finished anything. So I had these plans of finishing work. Um, As in completing, what do you mean by finishing work? Completing it, yeah. So I'd always, uh, my whole life, I'd just take it to 80% completion and, and I was too scared to finish it because at the moment it it could be amazing. Right, but, so you, you you would draw something to 80% completion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, oh, I don't want to finish it. It was part of, do I want to finish it because then I'll stuff it up. Yeah. Or um, there's something else to draw. Yeah. Essentially, I, I finished some work. I started selling them in the markets. My wife was a huge supporter. Um, then I realized I was just creating product and I was losing the heart of it. So I thought, um, what industry? And I realized children's picture books. Yeah. And so I thought... You know, this is like late at night. But what can I do in this? I I can't go to a course because I'm work full time. I can't afford a course. I can't do all these things. And I finally boiled it down to well, I, I don't want to give up on this. Um, and the end product is a book. And what I need to make a book is a piece of paper and a pencil. And I've got one of those. I've got. <laughs> and there's no one here telling me that I can't do it. So mm. I thought. You know, learning from Pixar and failing off, and I thought, let's just do it. Let's just start making these things. And um, the big break, I, I did a little stint with Philip Blythe at the Arts Academy, which was awesome. But it was like, 
I'd go there for two hours in a week. And I ended up, I ended up graduating there as the, one of the leading graduates the, on the second year. Mm-hmm. And they were all kind of like amazed that I could do this work in two hours a week. But I think when you, when you have no time, yeah. you, you're forced to, to focus. Um, so my big break came when I attended a children's book workshop uh, with Dr. Virginia Lowe and Peter Canavis. And I brought my books to that workshop. I was going to go there. You brought your, so, your artwork. To yeah, my artwork and my dummies, my picture book dummies that I'd made. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went there to see if there was any more information I could. And I remember asking Peter at the end of it, I said, look, Peter, I've got, I've got these. I've got these books and I've got this portfolio. How, what, what do I do? Do I just keep working on these books or do I keep working on the portfolio? And he said, look, I can't promise you anything, but, you know, you've got some good stuff here. Um, I'll, I'll send some of your pictures to my publisher. Mm. And I was super thankful though. I, I didn't want to, you know, push my way in. I was like, oh, thank you so much. And then about six months later, I was, I had a meeting at work and, and it was for a job that I applied for and I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And it was a job I really wanted. I remember just walking out going, oh, man, this is, you know. Like an I IT thinking. job? Yeah, an IT job. Mm-hmm. Finally, an IT job that I would be interested in, like mm-hmm. really interested in. And I didn't get it. Um, and I was flipping through my phone trying to distract myself and there was an email from Sophia at New Frontier saying, Hi, Giuseppe, I saw a, a picture of an owl on your Facebook page that I really loved, one of my first pictures that I'd finished. Kind of need those things, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know, do you have some time to illustrate a book? And like, it was like I'd, it wasn't like I'd gone to the news agent and bought a Godlotter ticket. Or a scratcher ticket. It was like I found one. It was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It was. Oh my! Oh my! Oh my God! I'm in. You know. Now and was she the publisher that? Um, who did the cutie? No, but the, she the publisher that the gentleman he, said he was going to. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there was that personal connection. I called up Peter and was like, Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess then it was like, okay, here's my foot in the door. I got to make. Hoodoo Cutie, amazing. I yes. Have to, this this is my this is my business card. Yes. Um, and so I just. And Hootie the Cutie is adorable. I actually just <laughs> want Hootie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tell you what. You know when you've made it, when a kid at school dresses up as Hootie for. Oh the, my god! That I was is like that's that's gold. <laughs> that is adorable. So so that was your break. Now you've done four books since. So you still got your day job, and you do this when. At night, mm-hmm. um, just kind of push through it and, and then usually... But is it tiring or is it energising? Oh, it's tiring. Oh, that's a really good question. It is tiring before I start mm-hmm. and about 15 minutes into it, it's tiring. And then you, I get hooked. Right. Stay doing it for hours. Wow, that, okay. That, that build-up. You know? Yes. Yeah, I've got to self-initiate. And once I do that, then I'm into a rhythm. I guess because you're chasing something and, mm. and when you're creating art, it's a big process, but there's always that little next step. Mm. And, um, I think it, my journey for my books and the way I create art is a bit like how Oliver uh, <laughs> lives. There's so <laughs> many grumbles when I create art. There's uh-huh. so many times where you're like, this is... I can't do this job. This is just too hard. I can't. I'm not, I'm not delivering. I'm not. You know, so much emotional um, 
it's such an emotional thing. But yeah. Forget about the technical side. Um, and you get to a point where you're like, okay, I can't fix this picture, but can I fix that part? No. Can I fix that little part there? Can I fix his face? Yeah, okay, I can fix his face. And that's how I always get back into my picture. And, and often, as soon as I start that process, um, you know, like 80% of the way of the, the completion of the picture, the picture is done in like a couple of hours after that. And it's amazing. Mm. And I'm like, I, and I can't see it. And it's just that little bit of love of yourself and, and, and giving yourself the ability to, you know, not be perfect and, and just try something really small and kind of claw your way back. Mm. Now, when you are given a manuscript, so because you, you, you're given the words and it's then up to you to come up with some amazing um, illustrations for every single page in the book. Yeah, yeah. So presumably you're given the manuscript like in a Word document or something. Yes, yes. it looks pretty unattractive. Exactly. So it's they're just like 500 words on yep. a page. Yep. What do you then do? What's the process to create? this magical thing that I'm holding in my hand, for example, <laughs> Oliver's Grumbles, because seriously, it is magical. When you put the words and the illustrations together, yeah. it's uh, it's amazing. So what do you do? Because you have to come up with such different things for every page because, you yeah. know, you can't have the same thing, right? And the, and the reader's going to stay engaged. Yeah. What What's the process? Well, for me, the number one thing is the heart of the story. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while for me to get that, um, but I I don't really start until I find it, because when I find the heart of the story, when I find when I find the heart of the story, then I can find the emotional journey that the reader is going to go on. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. is it happy at the beginning and then oh no and then oh no and 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 what what do I want these pictures to? What sort of feeling do I want to create in my audience, and what sort of journey do I want to take them on? Mm-hmm. But, but how do you find that heart? Do you just think about it or go for a walk? Or like what, what do you actually do to find that heart? Okay, yeah, um, what do I do? Um, I, I, well, okay, so with Oliver, right, mm-hmm. uh, when I read it, there's a little boy and he's angry and, and he's, he's angry and I'm reading this text and going, I don't think I can illustrate a book about a kid who's angry for like 75% of it. Like that's not. <laughs> You know, yeah. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I just tried and go, no, no, that's not right. And what about this? And eventually, I kind of stumbled across. Okay, it's not him that's necessarily angry. It's all these things around him. Um, and it's it's an iterative process, I guess. You just try, keep trying. And I think about the story arc. I think about well, he's got a you know, it's interesting if he goes through a character change or mm-hmm. what's he like at the beginning, what's he like at the end. And I think you kind of you just kind of pick it at bits and pieces. And eventually, but sometimes you don't get that right. Um, and I remember doing the storyboard thinking, yeah, this is good, I got it. Uh, and I sent it for review. And in discussion, I heard, you know, they're flipping the page to go, yeah, that's great. Oh, love that. Love that spread. Yeah, love that spread. They're working, walking through the book. Love it, love it, mm. love it. Oh, um, next spread. Uh, <laughs> next spread. Mm, next spread. No, no, that's not what we were thinking. Oh, next spread. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's okay, a bit. Good. And I'm like, 
Oh, <laughs> such a got to be careful not to make it an ego trip because you know, and I don't see it as that. It's a team effort. So I'm yeah. like, okay, I've missed something here. Yeah, right. And and you know what solves it for me a lot of the time? It's like washing dishes. No, I uh-huh. step away from the computer at like I don't know ten o'clock at night after the conversation, and I'm like, I can't, I can't solve it right now. I go wash some dishes, Ugh. and then like something happens, and I'm just my mind's off it, and bang. Yeah. Okay, now I know what they mean, and I got yeah. back on Messenger. I was like, "Did you mean blah 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 blah?" And they went, "Yes." Uh. I'm like, "Awesome!" And so you know, bang, fixed it, and um, and did it. And and apart from like that's the story arc of it, that's the feeling of it. The design of the characters, um, you know, you make some decisions. These grumbles needed to be like emotion. Mm. Um, and so the number one thing for the grumbles was facial expression and yes. pose and colour. And I didn't want to dress them up or do them because they're amorphous. And they don't even keep count. They kind of grow. And, um, but they had to be pure emotion, like their, their expression and everything. So that's yep. what kind of designed them. Um, so yeah. clever because you are illustrating emotion, but the way it's done is absolutely adorable and oh. and clever. So you you once you get to the heart of the story, mm-hmm. do you, do you then do sort of spread by spread and and try and think, well, what kind of scene do I want to depict here, or yeah. do you, do you do it in a linear fashion, or do you do it in you know, jump around? How does it work? Yeah, you jump around. Like, um, um, so there'll be some images or some scenes or some spreads, like you, you divide the, the book up into the spreads and then you think about um, you kind of start with what you've got and what you don't want. So mm. there'll be some scenes where this has to be a full-page spread and it really needs to be this kind of composition. Mm. Or I was kind of caught up because in Oliver, the big story arc for him happens in one spread, but it happens over a long period of time. Mm. So I needed to be able to show this period of time, but also all the emotions that he goes through. So that we, it's almost like a mini book in a book. Mm. Um, and just trying to compositionally show that took a, a long time. But essentially you find the big beats of the story, like, and usually they're the full page spreads. And then because you want some variety in the book, mm. you'll, you'll spatter in some, you know, some spot illustrations or a half-page illustration. But it will always be what's the build-up here, you know? So you may build up from uh, uh, a few spots to a half-page to a, a big moment, like the moment when he wakes up angry. That's a big moment. So that's a full-page spread. Mm. And I kind of – some of those big pages I had straight away. And some right. of those other pages you just work on and work on and work on and they take a while. Mm. What's the most challenging thing about illustrating a picture book? Um, from, from, it's creating that experience in the mm. child mm. Uh, and leaving space. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently. Mm. Um, it's, it's not about you don't want to draw what the words say. Yeah, yeah. That's so um, right. Yeah, you mm. want to add something more to it. Um, and that, that's the most challenging part, yeah, because kids don't need things fully rendered. Mm. You know, like some of the simplest books are the most amazing books. And you look at that from an art person or from someone who, who could draw, you're like, well, is that all it takes? You know, like, 
like a solid Nico line and a, and a, and a splash of colour. Is that all it takes? And sometimes it does. And so, yeah, that's the challenging bit. How do I, how do I um, construct something that in its simplest form conveys the most meaning and the most pacing, you know, because it's that page turn. Mm. I of that. So what's the Grandmaster plan now? For your <laughs> illustration career. <laughs> well, um, Bruce Wayne's tired of being Bruce Wayne. He's a big Batman all the time. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's, I need to go back into my Batcave and, and, uh, and work on. My master plan is to get better at making a story because I think um, to get a book out there and to make it really successful, it's a team effort. Yeah. And I'm not a marketing person. I'm not a publisher. I'm not an editor. And it would take me a lifetime to get good at all of those things. And I've only got one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm, my focus is to focus on story. Yeah. So now I'm trying to construct picture books as quickly and as often as I can and get feedback on it because yep. that's the number one. Apart from your craft, it's your feedback. Yeah. Um, so I need to build these things quickly and get comfortable with building and understanding the pacing and the pages and show them to kids and get feedback. And so you're moving into writing your own picture books, are you? Yes. Sorry, right. yes. Great. Yes. Because you, so far you've illustrated them but not written them, but now you're moving into writing and illustrating. Yes. yes. Very, very exciting. Well, look, I, I have no doubt that we're going to see much more from Batman <laughs> in in the uh, months and years to come uh, and I'm just so excited to watch the next step in your journey. So thank you so much. Now where do people find you online in case they want to see some of your stuff? Yeah, so you can go to my website, giuseppepoli.com, G-I-U-S-E-P-P-E-P-O-L-I. Com. If that's too long, just do a Google search for Poli, P-O-L-I, artist. Fantastic. Um, up at the top and then you can find all my other yeah, channels of communication. Wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, Giuseppe. Oh, thank you, Valerie. I hope, I, I hope it helps someone out there, some other bat person. <laughs> <laughs> There you go, Giuseppe. Oh, I just think that's such a great story. I love the fact that he's using kind of both heart, both sides of his brain yes. as how people talk about it. But you know what really stands out for me with that little conversation that we had prior to this and also mm. with Giuseppe, the importance of talking to people at conferences. Now, yes. I, I just find it really interesting that lots of people will go to conferences and they'll listen to the panellists and they'll do whatever, yep. but they don't actually go out of their way to talk to the person next to them or have a little chat with somebody or yep. do whatever. So they, you know, you don't know who's standing next to you at a conference. And as an example, Shane W. Smith, who was our competition last week was to win yes. two of his graphic novels, Undad and Undad 2. Mm. I met Shane W. Smith at Comic Gong last year. I took the boys along to it mm. and, you know, we were poking around through the things and I came across his graphic novels there. I was having a flick through. He went out of his way to have a conversation with me and, you know, 10 or 15 minutes later I was like, you know what, because he told me, you know, that he was still working as a public servant at the time and he was, you know, doing his graphic novels in his spare time. We had this kind of chat and I said to him, him, you know what, you should be on my, you know, we have this podcast, would you like mm. to be on the podcast, blah, 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 and I wanted to talk to a graphic novelist and he became 
the graphic novelist because we had a conversation. And yeah. I think it just really highlights the importance of actually talking to people. I think it's really, really important. And I think a lot of writers get very shy and I understand that. Um, you know, I'm not exactly – I know I sort of sound quite chatty. and <laughs> But if I'm at something like that, I consider myself to be, you know, on, so to speak. Yes. So I go out of my way to have conversations with people because you just never know who you're going to talk to or what you're going to learn by talking to them. So – and, you know, you've obviously, like you and Giuseppe, have – I've had a similar conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And you know that would never he would never have ended up on our podcast if he didn't bother to come up and chat to me during the break. Mm, exactly. And, and what can be a little bit um, frustrating as well is sometimes I'll go to an event and and that's all fine and the following day people will connect with me on Twitter and say and say um oh it was great to see you speak but I was too shy to say hello. Mm. I was like, well, it's good good on you for connecting online, but it it's because be- you're so terrified. <laughs> I, you know, I really, or, 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 you know, possibly they feel that they'll start a conversation and you'll start throwing words of the week at them or something. I'd be nervous. Or perhaps they've heard of the bluntness that can be involved. <laughs> And they're nervous, you know. I don't know, Val. I'm just thinking you're so terrified. (laughs) She's really not very scary. If you see her out and about, please say hello to her. And I won't throw any words of the week. She won't throw words of the week at you, we promise. (laughs) Or you might, just for fun. (laughs) So, yes, of course, it's speaking to people at conferences and networking, so important. And this and other really, really useful tips on how to build your profile and build your author platform are, of course, available in Alison's fantastic course. It's going so well called How to Build Your Author Platform. And you can find out more about that at writerscenter.com.au slash platform. Now, Al. Yes. I have got a question for you, Valerie. Okay. well, we have a working writer's question okay. this week right. and it's addressed to me, which means okay. I get to read it out and then you get to answer it. <laughs> so, you know what, Amanda Paul, thank you for sending it to me because normally I'm on the end of it. All right. So okay. it says, hi, Al, I'm loving your podcast. Wondering if you could include one around how to get your mojo back after receiving bad feedback mm. or in my case, no feedback until it was too late and then it was bad feedback. Mm. I'm looking at getting into freelance copywriting, but my confidence has been burnt from just two staff members where I work and I can't shrug it off. Amanda Paul. So my question for you, Valerie, is how do you shrug off bad feedback? Yeah. Okay. So I think that in the first instance, you need to look at where the bad feedback is from and whether it comes from anyone who's remotely qualified. Because sometimes, particularly in a work environment, there might be people who are giving you feedback on your work just because they're senior to you in the hierarchy of the corporate world or whatever, but they don't necessarily have expertise in that particular area. So do look at where it's coming from in terms of whether those people actually have have expertise to comment on it, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's number one. And if they don't, then you should train yourself to take it with a grain of salt because Mm. if they actually aren't 
writers themselves or, you know, anything like that, then you've got to wonder, well, where is that supposedly expert opinion coming from? However, if they do have some semblance of uh, expertise, I think what you need to do, like you do when you go to the doctor, is get a second opinion. Yeah. And I think that that's really important because that certainly happened in my life where I have had um, feedback that, you know, has been such a, so crushing to your ego or mm. really maybe not so much crushing to your ego, but really makes you feel insecure Mm. and really makes you doubt yourself. And I think what is important then is to get that second opinion. And of course, make sure you're getting it from somebody with expertise just to see whether there is a common thread or whether that person was just, you know, talking out of their bum really. (laughs) (laughs) Not to put too fine a point. See what I mean? She's not blunt at all. (laughs) Not really. But – then you need to be honest with yourself. After you do those things and assess the situation, you need to think, okay, well, um, maybe I'm just going to ignore this or have they got a point? Mm. And you, if they ha- – And what I mean by have they got a point is you need to not think – you need to remember that it's probably not personal Mm. and there probably – there might be some ways in which your writing can be tweaked or improved slightly, but it's just a tweak. It's not something that's meant to be soul-crushing. It doesn't mean you're crap and really terrible as a writer. We can – every single one of us can improve. I still like getting feedback on my work because it shows me areas where I can improve. Mm. So sometimes you also – got to put a mirror up and be really honest with yourself and ask, am I actually being too sensitive as well? Yes. And the other thing that I would also like to add to all of those things, because those are excellent points (laughs) and things, is that if you want to be a freelance copywriter, chances are that you are going to be dealing with, with people like this over and over and over again because working for clients means that you have to give clients what they want. So mm. if these are people who are above you in the food chain at your work, you have to sort of think about how are you going to manage this situation um, if you're going to be consistent. If, if this is something that you've produced for someone else, then at the end of the day, you have to give someone else what they want. This is not about you being precious and innovative and creative and whatever. You have to actually give the person that you're working for what they want. So if they come back to you and say, look, your ideas are too out there, Um, What I I just want something a lot more straightforward, Mm. it's not necessarily a, a sort of an indication that your creativity is, you know, not great Mm. it's more an indication that you haven't hit the brief so sometimes it's about as much about that and giving the client what they want as it is about you writing you know world-class winning beautiful words and that's the thing that you have to remember as well it's really important working writing for someone else is a particular skill and it's something that you learn over time you are not writing your soul's work you are trying (laughs) to produce something that other people want and that's you know that's something that if you're going to work as a professional copywriter that is something that you need to get your head around very very early or you are going to be sad yeah Definitely, definitely. So I hope that helps, Amanda. But like at the end of the day, um, how do you get past it? You just keep doing it. It's the only way. The only way to get better and to get stronger at it is to keep doing it. And if you get, um, you know, and have a look at whether there are, as Val said, common threads in the kind of feedback that you're getting. Yeah. And, you know, just uh, both Al and I have been in situations in the past where our confidence has been rocked. But as Mm. Al said, you just keep going and you learn Mm. from it and you do actually improve 
improve and you learn to discern when to listen and when, and, and take stuff take stuff on board and when to ignore it. It's the difference between being a professional writer and being someone who wants to be a professional writer mm. is being able to come back. Yep. With those sorts of things. Yep. Oh, cue the Rocky music. <laughs> Did you hear that? I've got my hands clasped above my head as we speak. Oh, my God. Oh, I know. I could sing it, but I won't. <laughs> That's one of my favourite movies. I okay. know. I know. All right. So we're almost at the end of the episode. What are you doing this week, Al? I don't know how we can top Rocky. I think we should just finish right there. Um, <laughs> what am I doing? Oh, my God. I've, I've come back from my holiday, you know, my my epic journey to Queensland Mm. and my to-do list is just, it's just terrifying. So basically my first task is the structural edit of my new series, the first book in my new series. So that's what I'm focused on at the moment is I'm going to weed my garden, walk my dog (laughs) and do my structural edit. (laughs) I thought weed my garden was euphemisms or something. (laughs) No, it's actually just actually what it is. There's no metaphor here. It's just that's that's what I'll be doing while I think about what I need to do. Okay. And you, what are you doing? Uh, what am I doing? Oh, we are putting the finishing touches on a new course, online course, which uh, you can access on demand called Inside Publishing. And it's pretty exciting because it's such a fantastic, comprehensive look into the whole publishing industry and your place in it and author's place in it and mm-hmm. what the author needs to do and know and understand in order for them to give their book the best chance. So Mm -hmm. it's not out yet, but it's going to be out very soon. But if you're interested, you can register for a special uh, pre-order special and you can find that at writerscentre.com.au slash platform. It's only a couple of weeks away from launching and it's – it's going to be a cracker. Mm. So writercenter.com.au slash pla- um, not platform. Did I say platform? I meant writercenter.com.au slash publishing. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, yeah, register your interest there because you'll, you won't regret it. So where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where will we find you? On Twitter, at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O. Uh, also on Instagram, at Valerie Koo. And just search for Valerie Koo in Sydney on Facebook and you'll find me there. So, I have to ask before yes, we go, last yes. question. What's happened with your Snapchat experiment? Oh, have you have you has it gone by the way? So it has a bit. I haven't. Mm. The only thing I've done is send funny faces to my friend Jake, who sometimes I just send funny faces to, mm. and that's really all I seem to be using Snapchat for these days. Right. You know, I, don't I think know. that's all most people are using it for. You know, those little fairy halo things. Yeah. And yeah, that's all I seem to see. Is that? It's got some good filters, but, um, yeah, I've gone a little bit off it. So okay. I'm sticking with the tried and trusted Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the moment. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And we both look forward to you connecting with us on social media. Let us know how you're going. And in the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.